Hello and welcome to the top 10 things you can do to prevent child sexual abuse. My name is Megan and today I am talking about tip number two, know who sexually offends and not relying on the sex offender registry. So if you did not listen to tip number one, you should probably start there. It is a very important tip on how kids really need to have some idea about what sexual abuse is, since it is a very significant public health situation that a lot of kids unfortunately experience. If it doesn't happen to them, it will most likely happen to somebody that they know, and we want them to be prepared and in knowing how to talk about it. One of the saddest things in, in my work as a mental health therapist is when I ask kids, who was the first person you were able to tell? So often they tell me their best friend. And until just recently, when we finally, after years and years of me working here at the Children's Advocacy Center, we finally had a case come in that had come to light thanks to a group of friends. This little girl had been in a slumber party, they were playing truth or dare, and when she told her truth, it was that her cousin was sexually abusing her. And it was the very first time in, in hundreds and hundreds of cases that I've worked with that I've ever heard of a child actually, um, or in this case, a group of children, actually coming forward and reporting that abuse. So I really want to create a community of of adults, but also of children, that if they hear about this happening, will know what to do. Because all of these other kids that have heard about this happening to their friends, I don't know where that information goes. I don't know if they don't understand it, or maybe if they tell their parents, and those parents just don't want to get involved in somebody else's life. But it's just really important that we start acknowledging this public health crisis and, and talking about it as a community, because that is exactly what the sex offenders do not want us to do. So let's, let's break their rule, because they are very, very keen on making sure that we are uncomfortable and don't want our kids knowing about this. And so really, that's, that's what I hope you took from, from tip number one, is that we really need to have children aware and adults as well, so that we can talk about this and and prevent it. So now as we move into tip number two, uh, we really want to be able to understand who who these people are. And so I'll tell a little story of really how this class came to be, was that I had been working as a therapist for for years um, and, and specifically specializing in child sexual abuse and working with that trauma. And around that time of me starting my career, I also started to have my own family. And I was just noticing as my kids were getting older that I was actually using a lot of things that I had learned from my clients in trying to build prevention strategies for them. And just in the way that I was talking to them and the information that I thought that they should have. And so I had kind of been thinking through of like, how could I put this together to share it with parents? But really, I didn't have a whole lot of of motivation and wasn't sure that I would have a whole lot of interested um, audience members. So I had just kind of been mulling over the idea. And then something happened here in um, my 
community in western Colorado, and that was that we had a person move into the area that came with a registry requirement. Um, he was called a sexually violent predator. Now, the reason he had that label is because he came from a state that everyone has that label of sexually violent predator. And so when he moved to Colorado, he had to carry that label with him and meet the requirements that are set because there's kind of different tiers and, and what is expected from them. If you're a sexually violent predator in Colorado, or at least at that time, you were required to have a community meeting and basically present yourself to the community publicly and be available um, to answer questions. And so that's what this man did. And uh, he had his meeting and there were over 100 people that attended with their pitchforks and torches and ready to run him out of town. And, uh, you know, everybody was very, very... Um, up in arms about the whole situation. And, and I understand it's, it's not something that you want your community to have somebody without label living in it. Um, and so people were, were definitely upset, but, uh, it just really started to get out of hand. And, and there was this widespread panic that was kind of born out of it. And for example, one of the things that happened was that a school district sent out an email to all parents with his license plate number saying if they saw him driving, that they needed to report it, which was just ridiculous because it was not illegal for him to drive. So it was just a lot of energy and momentum uh, and clearly a lot of concern in the community. The Children Advocacy Center, Riverbridge, where I work, started getting a lot of calls with concerned parents wanting to know what to do. And they were just so frantic, and I just realized that this was, they were all driven by this myth that this guy was the biggest risk to their children. And in reality, he would probably sexually offend on their child in the same way that he offended the first time he did, which was he lived with his niece and he sexually abused her while he lived with her. So they, he had a relationship with the victim. And most likely, that is how he would offend again, is having developed some kind of relationship with a child victim and their family and building that trust and to the point where people are letting him be alone with their children. Um, but this idea of stranger danger and child abduction and that he would just be driving around and he would pick up a child and run away with them, well, it's really not in his character, at least not in his previous offense, is not, that's not what he did. And generally people have a tendency to kind of stick with what they know and most of the time they're offending on kids that they have that relationship with. So that is how tip two came to be, is really me wanting parents to understand who their child is at risk for being abused by. And it's very unlikely that they're going to be abused by somebody on that registry, um, because at least in the, the couple thousands of kids that we've seen at the River Bridge, it's a very few number have the alleged offender listed as a registered sex offender. It is just not something that that happens very frequently. And even still, if they are abused by a registered offender, normally that person has used the same tactics of developing a relationship with that child and having access to them, rather than just being somebody that just grabs a child. So 
The first thing that I, I want parents to really understand with this tip is that victims know their offenders over 90% of the time is the national average. At least in our small community, I think it's even more than that. But it's very often that victims do know their offenders. Offenders are family members, people in a position of trust, and very often older or larger children. And so that's another thing that the registry is not demonstrating is that kids are abused by other kids. And since they're juveniles, they're not listed on the registry. And so we do not have the opportunity to, to see their pictures. So uh, 25 to 50% of the time, offenders are teenagers. And that is just something that, that we really need to be aware of when we're trying to keep our kids safe from abuse. It's important to talk to our kids that this sometimes happens from other kids, from from teenagers. Um, and there's a statistic that I've seen that the, the age that comes up most frequently when you look at the ages of all sex offenders is 14. And so that is just shocking to a lot of parents. But really, if you think about it, this is when these huge hormonal surges are happening, that they have very little impulse control, and that they are in a position really to break the rules. Because most people, when they're in breaking rules and, and testing boundaries, it happens in adolescence. And so that's a, very often um, offenses are, are committed by, by other teens or other kids. Um, most sex offenders are committed, I'm sorry, most sex offenses are committed in the residence of the offender or of the victim. And so it's really about knowing who do you have in your home and whose homes are your children in and thinking through that because that's really where they're most at risk, not out on the street, which is where we really put most of our prevention efforts. Of course, I'm going to be talking about men throughout this presentation primarily, but women do sexually offend. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that yes, women are sex offenders, um, but men much more so. Offenses occur within racial groups. And so very often there's this myth that you need to watch out for uh, races that are not your own and watch out for others. But in reality, offenses usually occur um, with, well, consider who's in your home the most and whose home are you in the most. It's most likely the same race as your own. And so offenses occur most often within racial groups. Many offenders are already in adult relationships. And so that is something that I think a lot of people confuse sex offenders with pedophiles. Pedophiles are solely, purely attracted to children, and they are a very, very small percentage of sex offenders. Very often sex offenders are in healthy adult relationships, and when I'm talking in tip number three about the grooming process, and I really want people to understand how sexual abuse is not about the sexual gratification, but it's about power and control. I think that that can be understood when you think that, well, they are in adult relationships and they could get that sexual gratification elsewhere. So in stranger abduction, it, it accounts for just an extremely small percentage 
of all sex offenses. And most of the time, if a child is abducted, it's with intent of taking that child away from the home for good. Most sex offenses um, are occurring to children, and they're just in secrecy in these relationships where they have the power and control over the child and this opportunity to abuse them over and over again. Because that's ultimately what they're looking for. They're looking for an opportunity to have this relationship with the child so that they can have many times of being able to offend on them. It's much lower risk. And if they are to go and just grab a kid at the state fair and pull them into a booth or a restroom and, and sexually touch them, that child is going to run screaming out of the area and report the person immediately. And it's very unlikely that that child would keep a secret versus if the person is able to find maybe a vulnerable single mom and woo her, all kinds of grooming on the parent and then grooming on the child and ultimately patiently finding an opportunity then to start offending on this kid long term, then they will be able to have many opportunities and to engage the child in that secrecy. So that is ultimately their goal and the purpose for wanting to have that relationship. So when we really consider this registry and the false security around it, think about how a lot of kids do not tell, most kids in fact do not tell, especially when they're children, and so I will be getting to that in a later tip, but uh, many offenders don't ever face prosecution because even if the child does, it's a t does tell, it's a dead end disclosure. Maybe they tell and that it doesn't get reported, or maybe it does get reported and there's just not enough evidence to prosecute. And then when they do get prosecuted, very often offenders win their cases and they are able to convince a jury that they are not guilty, and so they certainly aren't going to be registered. Uh, many offenders fail to register even when they're supposed to, because believe it or not, these are not the most honest people. And so they uh, don't necessarily follow the rules, obviously. Um, and then the percentage of sexual offenders that actually register is, it's just so small. And still, they're just going to use those same tactics of they want to, they don't want to scare a child and they want to just have a relationship with them and keep, get them invested in the secret. So relying on that registry um, and thinking that, oh, well, I've done my job. I know exactly where all the sex offenders in my area are. My kids don't have contact with any of them. So they are safe is just really a false security. You should do that, and then so much more. And that is really more about the relationship that you have with your child and the information that they need. So that uh, stranger danger, again, it's just, it's, it's confusing. It prepares a child to expect not okay touches uh, to only come from strangers or from bad guys. And if it's their favorite uncle touching them, they're just confused and they're overwhelmed and they freeze. And then they feel like they let it happen and become really invested in the secret. Child sexual abuse is just so confusing. And because the child is being abused by somebody that they, they love and care about very often, they don't fear the relationship. They may even seek that relationship out. And that's something that I hear from parents 
that when they're questioning the child's credibility is, but she always wants to be around him. And that's exactly what an offender wants. They want to have be seen as somebody that is loved and adored and not feared so that they can have access to the kid. So I think that this is something that you probably hopefully got out of tip number one as well. And this theme is really about the confusion that kids feel because that confusion is really what leads to the trauma and more importantly, it leads to the secrecy. And so as we get more into tip number three, talking about grooming and tip number four, we'll be talking about secrecy and you'll be able to better understand that, but that's really where lies the trauma of child sexual abuse. And so I want to make sure that, um, we, we are raising kids that if this happens, they're confident and knowledgeable and they can respond by saying, I know about this. And they know to tell rather than being just so completely confused by what has happened. So that is it for tip number two, just making sure that parents are well aware of the fact that that stranger danger is very, very limiting and that sexual abuse is so much beyond that. Most children know their offenders and have a relationship with them. And most parents have a relationship with the offender as well. So so that wraps up tip number two. Thank you so much for completing your, your second episode. Uh, we will now be moving next time into tip number three, going more into detail about this relationship and the grooming process. Again, I want to refer any survivors that need further assistance to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at 1-800-656-HOPE or reporting any kind of child sexual abuse to your local law enforcement or child protective services agencies. So thank you again. This is Megan with the top 10 things that you can do to prevent child sexual abuse. Please join me next time for tip number three.